We approach that season of the year, at least in the Christian calendar, in which minds are concentrated upon the cross of Calvary. That ought to be so, of course, throughout every other month of the year, not just at Easter. But what is often spoken as the Easter story invariably brings us to that holy city of Jerusalem, and in particular to outside the city walls, and to the place where the dear Lord was crucified. What a sight to behold as the Savior comes forth from Pilate's gate, bearing that which would soon bear him. Bad enough to be sentenced to the most cruelest of deaths, but then to have to the shame of having to carry the very cross before that gazing crowd. But men and women, is it not even more intriguing when we are allowed to look at the Savior's work at the cross through the lens of Peter, that bold disciple who said he was prepared to die for the Lord, who was ready to lay down his life, and yet he was the one who was to deny the Lord with oaths and curses at the behest of a little maid. It is Peter who was to be met by the resurrected Lord on that seashore. And it was Peter who was faced with that all-important question, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And he was asked it three times, because he denied the Lord three times. And each time he answers in the affirmative, Thou knowest, Lord, that I love thee, albeit using a very uh, lesser term than the word love that was used by the Savior. And Peter that day was restored to the work that the Lord had called him to do, of feeding the sheep, of feeding the lambs of the Lord's flock, and of strengthening the brethren as the Lord had prophesied and said that he would. And men and women, that is exactly what he does in his preaching. And that is exactly what he does in his writings. Because that which he focuses upon is the sacrifice that the Savior offered on yonder tree and on the sufferings of Christ to purchase our salvation. When we come to the passage that is before us, Peter speaking to the Jewish believers. And he was to encourage them in their sufferings. These believers knew that if they were living aright, if they were living in that which was pleasing before the Lord, then they would know the fiery darts of the enemy been hurled at them. But in answer to that, Peter was to encourage them not to be downcast. And if they suffered for well-doing, then they had cause to rejoice. In order to give the greatest example of one who was to suffer unjustly. He draws them to consider Christ and the enduring sufferings for the sinner. I draw you to verse 18 as the words of my text. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Here's Peter, and as on the day of Pentecost, he brings his writer and his reader to the cross. I want you to notice firstly there the suffering. When Peter speaks of Christ, he's speaking of the one who is the Son of God, and God the Son. The one who was the beloved of the Father, 
who left the realms of the glory he had with God the Father behind him to come down to the scene of time on earth. And he came, as Isaiah was to record in the great chapter of the cross, as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. From the cradle to the cross, he was to know no different. He was the one who suffered humiliation and rejection from his own. For John 1.11 reminds us he came unto his own, but his own received him not. He was the one who was despised, even though he went about doing good, healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. But he had come that one day he might suffer in a manner far beyond any of these. For the hands of cruel and wicked men were to take the Christ of God and they were to nail him to that tree. And there at that place called Golgotha, that place of the skull, the Lord Jesus Christ was to suffer like no other. But understand from the words of my text that his suffering was because of the perfect sacrifice that he offered I draw you into the midst of that text, and particularly to a little phrase. It says, He hath also hath once suffered. For Christ also hath once suffered. It means once for all, never to be repeated. And that is something that is a truth that comes across right throughout the Scriptures. Romans 6 verse 10, For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Or you think of Hebrews chapter 7 verse 27, and it says, Who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's, For this he did once when he offered up himself. And the great comparison or contrast is drawn with the Old Testament. Those scriptures that the men and women had in those days. And they were to consider the Old Testament priests. They never finished their work. They were always continually offering sacrifices. First for their own sins. And then for the sins of the people. But Hebrews 10 and 12 goes on to say, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. You see, there was never, in the Old Testament, there was never a seat found in the tabernacle. Because the high priest was always working. The only seat there was the mercy seat where the Shekinah glory of the Lord was found beyond the veil. The Savior and the anointed of God, the promised Messiah, was to offer but one sacrifice. But uh, you'll see he was to offer himself as that perfect sacrifice unto God. It was that sweet-smelling savor that arose before the Lord. And after all the scriptures were fulfilled concerning his death on the cross, he cried, Finish! Three words in the English, just one in the Greek. It was a complete sacrifice. It was an offering which can never be repeated again. It doesn't ever need to be repeated again. For Christ hath once suffered and he finished the work that the Father gave him to do. He said to his disciples, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Men and women, there's no more offering. 
There's no more sacrifice for sin. And so, dear loved one, if you're not saved tonight, if you reject Christ once for all, sacrifice for sin, as it is presented to you in the gospel message, then you reject God's salvation and you forfeit any hope or assurance of ever being with Christ and that for all eternity in glory. My friend, consider also from the word of my text, that his suffering was for the penalty of sins. For it says, for Christ also hath once suffered for sins. God, being a holy God, must punish sin. That stands in contrast to the actions of men. Men sweep it under the carpet. Men want to forget about it. Men want to call it by some other word to lessen its effect. But God is a holy God and he must punish sin. And if ever man could be saved and redeemed from sin, then there had to be one who would have to be willing to pay the punishment for sin. God is not like man. He cannot turn a blind eye to it and pretend it never happened. That is why God gave his son. So one day he might go, he might bear the sins of many on his own body on the cross. It was what the forerunner John the Baptist pointed out as he saw the Lord coming, as he was preaching to the people there by the river Jordan. He pointed him out, he said, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Give attention to Christ. Behold him. Behold the one who would pay the punishment for sin. Consider how great his sufferings were. Not only to be rejected of the crowd. Not only to hear those taunts. Away with him. Crucify him. Not only to be despised by the passerby. Calvary, you see, Golgotha was a very public place. And one of the gospel narratives tells us that the people walking by, they wagged their heads at him. Not only to receive those wounds and those nails, which meant excruciating pain in his body as it was suspended between heaven and earth in that place of no standing, but to know the greatest suffering of all, of being forsaken by the Father, where he cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why would God the Father not look upon the Son? Why were there those hours of darkness midday, right through across the, uh, over the cross, right through for those hours from the sixth to the ninth hour? It's because, as our text informs us, Christ was suffering for sins. He had become sin. He was bearing the punishment for that sin. And God the Father is a purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look on iniquity. He had to turn his face away as he bruised him and as he was making atonement for the sins of his people. Christ, who knew no sin, had become sin for us. You think of all the sacrifices that were offered every day in the Old Testament by the high priests. Yet they could never take away sin. But Christ offered himself. Himself. 
has that once for all sacrifice for sin. And on the cross, he took all the sin of all who will ever believe in him to the salvation of their soul. And as one stinking mass, it was laid in Christ. And he made them his very own. Let me ask you, does the sufferings of Christ mean anything to you tonight? And I confess my words have failed fully to describe those sufferings. And that's why the veil of darkness enveloped the cross. Because no painter can depict that. No author can write about that forsaken of the Father and the sin that was laid in Christ. But you know, not only seeing that, but I want you to consider also the substitute. Old preacher was visiting an old believer in a deathbed one day in his home. He said to him, Isn't it a good job that the gospel can be summed up in just a few words? That old man turned around to the preacher and he said, One word, sir. And the preacher inquired, What would that one word be? The old man said, Substitution. Substitution. And that is what we find in this text where it states, Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. And what it means is the sufferings of Christ were in the place, were in the stead of his people. The sacrifice that Christ offered was not for himself, but it was for others. And that is what is couched within that little word for. The just for the unjust. The Lord Jesus Christ, we know, was the only begotten of the Father. He was God's righteous servant. Paul reminds us that he knew no sin. Peter, he states of Christ, who did no sin, neither was any guile found in his mouth. He was the sinless, the perfect Lamb of God who could not sin. He was the just one. Therefore, his death on the cross, while he was to be numbered amongst the transgressors, and those who were dying justly for their deeds. Yet he was innocent of all charges that were laid against him. It was Pilate who said repeatedly, I find in him no fault at all. It was a dying thief. That thief that was converted in the eleventh hour, as we might say on the cross, by looking by faith to the man of Calvary, to the middle cross. It was that man who said to his other dying thief, his friend in crime, he said to him, this man had done nothing amiss. It was the centurion soldier when he saw the signs following the death of the Savior. He said, truly, this was the Son of God. You see, from all quarters, the testimony was of a perfect Savior, one who was just. One who is innocent. And yet the mystery is this. That he should die for we who are the unjust. 
who fell when Adam sinned in the garden against the Lord. For as by one man sin entered into this world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned, we've all come short of the glory of God. From birth our faces have been turned away from God and towards sin. We are sinners of the deepest dye. We're deserving nothing but the judgment and the wrath of a holy God. Prophet Jeremiah reminds us that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Men and women, we are those who are unjust. Unjust because there is no righteousness in us. Unjust because we are guilty of breaking God's law. We are lawbreakers. The unjust. And like Jacob can say, or could say, we're not worthy of the least of his mercies. Yet look at the text. Christ hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. Now, do you begin to see the importance of the little word for? It could be rendered like this. The just in the stead of the unjust. The just in the place of the unjust. In the room of the unjust. The good shepherd giveth his life for his sheep. There it is again. Substitution. Look at how it is used. If you turn over to Romans chapter 5, you look with me the words just of verse 6 through 8. You'll see it again here. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And there, in those verses, you have a fourfold description of the sinner. We are without strength. We are the ungodly, verse 6. Verse 8, we are sinners. Verse 10, we are enemies. And yet Christ died for those with the right strength, for the ungodly, for sinners, for, for his enemies. And that substitution in its fullest capacity, not merely for the benefit of sinners, but in their place. The Lord Jesus was willing, and as a sinless Savior, was able to die for the unjust. He stood into the place of the sinner. He paid the punishment for sin that we ought to have paid. He died the death that each sinner deserves. Yet how is it? How is it, man or woman, young person? How is it oft you've, you've often heard the preaching of the gospel? You've heard, often heard of the Lord Jesus Christ as the only Savior, and you've rejected it, and you've rejected the Savior, and you've gone out of meetings like this, and you've said, I will not have this man to rule over me. I will not be saved tonight, minister, preacher. The story is told of a body of men who had been taken part in a rebellion. They were sentenced. And every tenth man of them was to be shot to act as a deterrent to any others who would try the same. Among them was a father and a son standing together. And the son happened to look down the line and he started to count and he worked it out. The tenth would be his father. And he started to think what would the family be without a head, a mother as a widow, the light gone out of the home. And so, as quick as a thought, as a flash, he was to step in where his father stood. And the bullets rang out and he dropped dead. 
He was his father's substitute. Ask the father down through the years how he was saved. And with tears in his eyes and with a quivering voice, he tells of his substitute, none other than his only son. And men and women, you lift that up into the greater story of the gospel message and the Lord Jesus Christ stepping into your place and dying just as if he was the guilty so that you might be pardoned, that you might go free. It's the message of the just taking the place of the unjust. Of the Savior dying in the place of the guilty, hell-deserving sinner. Now let me ask you this. Is he your substitute? I've taught you tonight what a substitute is. I've shown you even from our text the, the definition of it. But is he yours? You see, what you find here in are just simple headings. We also see here salvation. The question might be asked, why did the Savior take the sinner's place? Is that question not answered also in our text? It was so that he might open up a way to God. That sinners might be reconciled to a holy God. You see, look at our text. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. There's only one way to God. And that is through the Lord Jesus Christ and his work in Calvary's cross. John 14 as well. No, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There's no other way to God. I don't care what the false religionists say today and in our society. There's no other way to God than through the sacrifice and the shedding of the precious blood. You see, the law demanded that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. Leviticus 17 verse 11 declares, it's the blood that maketh atonement for the soul. You just stop and you just think of the blood in the medical world. How much is revealed by the blood? You're not feeling the best and you go to the doctors and all of the rest of it. The chances are they might test the blood. And they get a wee blood test. And they'll take this box, that box, the other box, and it'll be sent away to be analyzed and so forth. You see, when the blood goes wrong, then the body goes wrong. And if it's not dealt with, then it will die if it's not treated. And the same can be said in many a church. They might be upright. They might have a good social standing. But we're being wrong on blood theology. And they're dead. And have no message to offer to the guilty soul. The blood of Christ makes atonement for the soul. There's no other way to be saved. And by the blood of God's chosen lamb. You think of Cain tonight. Cain, who was brought up in that same family as Abel, under the same teaching that his brother had, one who knew that there was a time for the worship of God, and yet he sought to please God through the works of his own hands by bringing even the fruits of the ground. I read in Genesis 4, in the words of verse 3, and in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. 
And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. Abel went to the flock. A little lamb was taken and was slain. And he brought it as an offering unto God. But for Cain, he sought to approach God without the shedding of the blood. His offering wasn't accepted just like many a soul is doing today. They're trying to get to heaven without the blood. Preacher, I don't need this salvation that you preach because I do this or I do that. And I attend that church and I've attended that place for many years. Oh, my friend, listen, there's only one ground of acceptance. Whereby you can be reconciled to God and you can be at peace with him. And it's through the once for all sacrifice for sin that Christ offered in the sinner's place. It's there the cross that he shed, his precious atoning blood in the place of the unjust. And if you are to be saved, then you must come. And by faith receive the Lord Jesus as your Savior, recognizing that he didn't die on that cross for his own sin. He didn't die on the cross, not even for the sins of the world, but he died on the cross for my sin. He died for me. That's personal. That's personal salvation. And that is what you can experience tonight. How can that be? Because God is just and the justifier of them that believe in Jesus. But it can be because of what even is in our text. I don't have to leave our text. For the end of the text reminds us that he was raised again from the dead. You see it? For Christ also at once suffered for sins. The just for the unjust that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but quickened By the Spirit. I don't bring to you a dead Savior. A dead Savior can save no one. I don't preach to you one who's still on the cross. I don't preach about one who's still lying in the tomb or couched in his mother's arms. I bring before you men and women, young person, the glorious truth that Christ died according to the Scriptures. He was buried and rose again according to the Scriptures. The Lord himself states in John 15, I no man taketh my life from me. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. I present before you a living Savior. He's quickened by the Spirit. Dear sinner, because Christ arose and because Christ ascended back to the Father's throne, having finished the work, he is able to save to the uttermost all that come unto the Father by him. And the invitation of the gospel is still going out. And you can be pardoned. And you can be saved tonight by trusting in Christ and the work of Christ and the work of Calvary alone for your salvation. You can meet with the Lord just where they are. Say that to a man that was in his, I was in his company this week. You don't need a minister or a prelate. You can just go down to the side of your bed and ask the Lord into your heart to take away your sin. Amen, oh, woman, you can be saved before I even get to those doors tonight. You can be saved right where you are.
the salvation that God offers in the gospel, it's full. It's free. It was wrought out by Christ at the highest cost, for he gave his own precious redeeming blood. Will you be washed from your sins tonight? In that precious blood, will you come and be saved? For Christ hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. You see, if you will not come, then there's nothing but an eternal suffering for the sinner. That's why I've entitled this message as a how. We've looked at the one who suffered for the sinner. But if you reject him, there's nothing for you to look forward to but an eternal retribution, an eternal suffering for the sinner in a Christless hell where the Lord said, where the worm dieth not and the fire is never quenched. But that need not be so. For Christ has paid your hell for you. He has paid the punishment that you deserve, that you might never go there, that you might be at peace with God. wonder will you come tonight. May God help you to come even to him now for his glory's sake. Remember my text. Christ also hath suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. The Lord bless his word to each and every heart tonight for his own name's sake. We'll stand.